Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and tonight we're going back across the world, back to that center of most moralities on the planet. In simultaneous hotbed of incessant bloody conflict, I'm talking, of course, about the Middle East. Today, we're recounting the epic story of the Yom Kippur War. I should point out that this is part four in a four-part series on the military history of modern Israel. You can find parts one through three in the shows immediately preceding this one. But if you're one of those people that want to dive into the middle of the conversation, here it is. But before we can recount one of the deadliest holidays in modern history, I've got to thank Antonio all the way from Houston, Texas for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, hit over to thebattlecast.com and hit the make a donation button. I also have to thank Nathaniel for making an invaluable donation. I appreciate you guys that donate more than you know. Finally, I've got to tell you, I'm reading all the emails you guys send in. And even if I don't get back to you, I cherish them all. I'm talking to you, Joshua from New South Wales. But now, blood, carnage, pain. Alright, so I've read tens of thousands of pages on Jewish and Islamic history the past few months, and the modern military history of Israel was a large chunk of those pages. And normally, I would brainstorm ideas for an hour on how to bridge the time between last month's show and this one. I would review my notes for my readings and try to come up with some clever introduction. But Israel's wars have been analyzed and summarized and examined like a body on an autopsy table or a bikini-clad co-ed on a beach by scores of competent historians. So I'll just quote one to get us from last month's show to the start of the Yom Kippur War. I should also point out that from 1967 to 1970, Israel and her neighbors fought a war of attrition along their respective frontiers. It's actually called that. It's called the War of Attrition, and it's not like a major conflict. It's a low-level conflict that's constantly simmering. Think of the way you kind of cook rice. It takes a long time, and it constantly simmers. You don't Grill it super fast like you do a good steak. That's exactly what's going on on the borders of Israel. Thousands died in this frontier conflict, but no territory changed hands. Howard Sacker explains it better than I can. Quote, From the moment the ceasefire came into effect after the Six-Day War, the Soviets proceeded to reinstate large-scale arms deliveries to the Middle East. Within two weeks, more than 200 MiG fighters arrived in Egypt and Syria. Fifteen months after the war, Egypt's tank strength had been increased from 250 to 470, and the Air Force had received 400 new planes. By 1969, 3,000 Russian military advisors and technicians were seconded to the Egyptian Air Forces, In addition, 1,000 were sent to Syria. In the next year, these figures ballooned to more than 12,000 Russian military advisors. The pattern of violence along the Suez Canal between Israel and Egypt developed in erratic sequence. The initial phases from the end of the Six-Day War until April 1969 were characterized by sporadic incidents of violence that grew in intensity and frequency. For example, on October 21st, an Egyptian missile ship sank the Israeli destroyer called Eliat. The Israelis retaliated three days later by shelling major Egyptian oil installations at Suez City at the bottom of the Suez Canal. 
The war of attrition went on like that for years, tit for tat, blood for blood. A sort of lex talionis transformed into physical reality. Egyptian artillery decimated Israeli ranks. Then the Israeli Air Force made ceaseless sorties for three months against Egyptian artillery positions, blowing them apart one by one, no matter how long it took. End quote. Now all this sporadic warfare was an economist's nightmare. Let's leave aside the inherent instability of war constantly looming over your country. Modern warfare is of itself expensive. For example, in May 1973, Israeli intelligence believed Syria was set to invade Lebanese territory. Israel mobilized thousands of troops to guard her own northern border, but it was a false alarm. Syria did not invade Lebanon, and the false Israeli call-up, which took place for no reason, cost 11 million Israeli pounds. That's enough to pay for more than 360 kindergarten teachers for a full year to build up tens of thousands of students' minds. It was a heavy price to pay for an intelligence failure. Moreover, all the bombs the Israelis were dropping on the heads of the Egyptians and the fuel they used to do it were excessively expensive. By 1971, the Israeli defense budget reached $1.5 billion, equivalent to 23% of the nation's GDP. In addition, as a consequence of this interminable low-level warfare, 500,000 Egyptian civilians were evacuated from the canal zone, a massive population shift. Now, you men and women tearing up cities across the Western world should think about that before you demonize the other side. I'm talking to both socialists and conservatives. Do you want to see 500,000 civilians displaced? How much would that cost? How many kindergarten teachers could that money pay for? It's a rare man who is content with what he has. Friends, especially my fellow Americans, you have a lot, much more than you realize. Don't put... All that on the line for the luck of the roulette wheel. Rather, let yourself be mistreated a little. Rather than upturn the whole table. The man at the back of the line may get his food served cold, but at least his belly is full. At least he's not going hungry. Anyway, after years of this low-level warfare, the Egyptians, along with approximately 12,000 Russian advisors and pilots, began moving state-of-the-art SAM missile artillery batteries to the canal. Keep in mind, the Sinai Canal is the dividing line between Egypt and Israel at this time. After the Egyptians built up their forces on the canal, the Israeli air attacks on the new equipment reached the scale of American raids in Vietnam. Still, the Egyptians strengthened their offensive capacity in the region. The new SAM missiles began to destroy Israeli aircraft, and the Jewish state's air supremacy was slipping through their hands like the end of a bad date with a steady girlfriend. You can tell something is wrong. The whole night just feels wrong. Her body tenses when you touch her soft hips. She hesitates to kiss you. That's how the Israelis lost air supremacy. You knew it was coming, but it hadn't formally ended yet. And by the end of July 1970, Israel had suffered more than 3,000 casualties since the Six-Day War in 1967. However, the Egyptians had lost more than 10,000 casualties in April 1970 alone. Think about that. 10,000 men were either killed or wounded in one month. It was in April 1970 that Arab guerrillas began attacking Israel in the north 
from bases in Lebanon. Formerly, this had been a quiet sector. Lebanon, after all, had a large Christian population that showed no excitement for joining the Jihad against another major religious minority in the Middle East. On May 2nd, guerrillas ambushed an Israeli school bus, killing 12 kids and teachers and wounding even more. The Israelis responded with a day-long sweep through Fataland. The Palestinian refugee and guerrilla population centers clustered along the Lebanese base across the border at Mount Hermon. So this is right next to the Israeli border. The Israelis cleared out the camps and they stayed using bulldozers to destroy the camps and fortify their positions. And you can imagine how the everyday regular Palestinians who lived in these camps felt about getting their meager possessions bulldozed. At the same time, terrorist attacks continued against Jews and Israeli citizens around the world. The acts were committed in the name of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, but yet there was more than one Palestinian Liberation Organization. Which one committed what crime is hard to say. For example, in February 1970, guerrillas planted a bomb aboard a Swiss airplane headed for Tel Aviv. The jet blew up in midair. Sixteen Israelis were among the many victims. On the same day, a bomb hidden in an Austrian Airlines aircraft exploded, yet the skilled pilot managed to land the vehicle safely. That's the guy I want flying my plane. The Israeli conflict was spreading across the world, causing hundreds of millions of dollars of damage, doing horrible things to Western diplomats like making them late for their lunch dates. At the same time, many Israelis were openly calling for the annexation of some or even more of the conquered territories, a prospect that would certainly ensure more terrorism and instability around the world. However, one factor mitigated Israeli hopes for annexation of territory the prospect of adding hundreds of thousands or even millions of Arabs to the Israeli population. With their high birth rate at the time, in time, Israeli politicians believed that Israel might cease to exist as an exclusively Jewish-dominated territory, and so the Jewish state's politicians endlessly debated what to do, and peace was not reached between the belligerents. Now, during the time between the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, Egyptian leaders weren't just playing Frogger. They were actually trying to conceive of a way to drive Israel out of the Sinai. However, the vast amounts of aircraft they would need to gain air superiority in the region was not financially feasible for the foreseeable future. Nasser, who had ruled Egypt for many years, died from a heart attack in 1970, and he was replaced by his close confidant, President Sadat. Now, Sadat desperately needed a victory to bolster his regime, and in 1972, the Russians thought they had figured out a way to give him one. Haim Herzog explains, quote, the Israeli Air Force was to be dealt with by the creation of one of the densest missile walls in the world, composed of a mixture of various types of Soviet SAM ground-to-air missiles, in addition to conventional anti-aircraft weapons. These would provide an umbrella over the planned area of operations along the Suez Canal. To counter the threat of an Israeli Air Force strike deep in Egyptian territory, Egypt would use Soviet Scud surface-to-air missiles, having a range of 180 miles, which would threaten populated areas within Israel itself. The Soviets assumed this would deter Israel from raiding deep into Egyptian territory. When the Scuds finally arrived and were unloaded onto Egyptian soil, Sadat decided to attack. 
First, he secured Syrian agreement to join in the attack. Accordingly, Soviet SAM missile systems were provided to the Syrians. In May 1973, Israeli intelligence noticed the increasing buildup in Egypt and Syria, but assumed the Arabs were simply trying to threaten the Jewish state. No one seriously believed they would attack. Even General Dayan believed that war was not imminent. In April 1973, the final phases of planning began. Yom Kippur Day, October 6, the Jewish Day of Atonements, was chosen because Israeli preparedness was assumed to be at its lowest on that day and because it coincided with the appropriate tides in the Suez Canal for an invasion. At 2 p.m., on October 6, the Egyptian and Syrian army struck simultaneously. Israeli reservists put down their prayer books and picked up their rifles. The Yom Kippur War had begun. End quote. Now, the war began like so many wars we've covered in this podcast, with thousands of shells and bombs splashing along the eastern Israeli-held bank of the Suez Canal and the Golan Heights on the Syrian border, in other words, a massive artillery strike. Arab planes penetrated far behind the Israeli front line, hunting for easy prey, diving on military trucks with impunity. In the north, after the barrage, the Israeli defenders heard something they had never heard before. Four helicopters were attacking them. Normally, the shoe was on the other foot. The helicopters carried Syrian commandos, hardcore, well-trained, elite soldiers. One of the helicopters exploded in midair. We still don't know why it did. This only motivated the Syrian commandos left over even more. They had an obligation to avenge their former comrades in the fourth helicopter, who transformed into ashes and spread across the Golan Heights in the blink of an eye. The choppers moved through the smoke, parting it like Moses parted the Red Sea. They were heading for Mount Hermon, the 6,000-foot radar surveillance intelligence fort, and the key position for Israeli intelligence in the entire area. The Israeli troops, who had survived the initial bombardment, had fled into the reassuring confines of the mountain. Surely they would be safe there. They had no clue the cream of all the jihadis in the Middle East were heading straight for them. The Syrians had figured out where the escape exit of the seemingly impregnable Israeli fortress was, and exiting their helicopters, the Syrian commandos hustled towards the exit like a hungry running back, poverty and a broken home, breathing down his neck, his only chance for all his dreams and his mother's dreams and his small town redneck community's dreams lie at the end of that football field, and he's going to get there, buddy. And the running back is a speeding bulldozer. He knows dives for the end zone, and he pushes past all opposition. Such was the way the Syrian special forces ran to the the exit. Fifty fell in the initial assault. Their somersaulting bodies looked like teenage gymnasts with each bullet that struck them. The commandos pressed on with a second assault, and this time they overwhelmed the Israelis in heavy hand-to-hand fighting. The attack sounded like a stampede interspersed with the familiar firecracker-like pop of AK-47 fire. The expert Syrian rangers moved through the Israeli fort like they owned it, and the Israelis had violated their property instead of the other way around. They cut down all who opposed them, and there weren't many of the shell-shocked soldiers who did oppose them. The rest were captured. The Syrians swept through the underground passages, blowing the back of the heads off of anyone who resisted them, but they were unable to break into the main communication center, which was protected by a locked steel bank vault door like you would see in, the, in a Batman movie Joker's trying to break into. The Syrians simply found a key, and the key was in the form of a human, an Israeli prisoner whom the Syrians tortured until he unlocked the door for them. 
Then the rangers moved inside the communications center, killing anyone in their path. They painted the walls a deep red. When they were finished, if you saw the aftermath, you would have thought you had stumbled into a George Romero film. Bright, bloody streaks of flesh and flecks of brain matter drizzled across the priceless computer terminals in the bunker command post. More Syrians came up to help fortify Mount Hermon. When they surveyed their newly acquired fortress, the Syrians and their Russian allies could not believe the advanced Western technology they had captured. Unimaginable devices, unbelievable achievements. You men and women living in the West today, there's so much you take for granted. Clean hot water, literally tubs of it at the flip of a valve. I've seen slums where children wait in line for 30 minutes to pump water into a bucket and then carry it back to their jerry-made shack. I've seen that with my own eyes. I've seen distended bellies and pleading eyes. People who view a McDonald's value meal as an unheard of luxury and you eat it without a second thought. The West is a heaven. Men have dreamed of the buffets you make fun of on social media. Whole cultures have died from mass starvation at the whims of a drought because nature didn't play ball that year. But you, you have more things than you know what to do with. We create shows to describe decluttering, that air condition running over your face right now, that car that takes you 40 miles in 40 minutes, the calories being sopped up inside your intestines are something to be thankful for. People outside the West see it. Franz Fanon said it like this, quote, The West is a sector of lights and paved roads where the trash cans constantly overflow with strange and wonderful garbage, undreamed of leftovers, end quote. Fanon can see what you have. Why don't you? Why do you hurt one another and berate one another on the computer, on Twitter? Why do you fight and kill each other in the streets? It makes no sense. Anyway, after the Syrians captured Mount Hermon, then two Syrian armored divisions comprising 800 tanks and three infantry divisions and armored personnel carriers rumbled into Israeli-held territory. The tanks bypassed the key Israeli fortifications, pushing on through gaps in the defenses. The Syrians broke through in two sectors, one in the north and one in the central south. The tanks advanced until nightfall. The breakthrough had pushed almost 10 miles into Israeli-held territory by nightfall. The infrared-equipped Syrian tanks pressed on, investing and liquidating the Israeli defenses in the southern area of the Golan Heights. Meanwhile, the Israelis predictably responded with their air power. A fly hurtles headlong into the spider nest and is devoured. So were the Jewish state's aircraft devoured by the surface-to-air missiles fingering up from Syrian territory, leaving man-made cirrus clouds in their wake. On October 7th, the Assyrians again probed Israeli defenses in the north. It was here that the Israeli 7th Armored Brigade stood like a seawall. They knocked out scores of enemy vehicles in heavy fighting, and by the morning of October 8th, 130 Syrian tanks and even more personal carriers were destroyed. Still, the Syrians poured in reinforcements. The 7th Brigade had fought for over 40 hours straight and they only had 40 takes remaining to stem the Syrian tide of iron, but they blunted the assault nonetheless. Then the Syrian artillery took over to soften up 
the intractable Israelis. They worked death into the 7th Brigade and their 40 tanks. And when the smoke cleared, the Israelis bit their hands when they saw 600 heavy tanks emerge from the artillery smoke clouds. Imagine a grasshopper impaled on a toothpick and placed in the middle of a disturbed ant hive. Such was the wave of the Syrian ants who swarmed the few remaining Israeli grasshoppers. The Israelis were liquidated in the onslaught. In just a few minutes, only six Israeli tanks were still in operational order. The rest were destroyed or broken. Their crews deconstructed into quivering body parts by machine gun fire. That's when the Israelis did the unthinkable. They attacked. The six working tanks pressed forward, and they were soon joined by a few more straggling tanks from other decimated units. They took the high ground and set out to stop almost the entire Syrian army. Fifteen tanks against the entire Muslim world. And the Syrians came, converging on the fifteen Israeli tanks the way King Theoden's horsemen surrounded the elephants in the film Return of the King. By this point, Jewish crewmen had been fighting for their lives for days without respite. And without reinforcements, all they could do was try to withdraw. But that's when reinforcements came. They were organized by Lieutenant Colonel Yossi, who had left his honeymoon when he was told of the Arab assault. He returned to Israel from his vacation, improvised a force of battered tanks which had been towed to the rear for repairs, and made his way to the 7th Brigade sector to do what he could. This one man, Yossi, made all the difference. The seven remaining tanks of the brigade joined Lieutenant Colonel Yossi's force and began to counterattack the Syrians. Heim Herzog picks up the story, quote, Taken by surprise, the Syrians had already lost some 500 tanks and armored vehicles in the killing ground, which came to be known as the Valley of Tears. The counterattack by Yossi's ragtag band broke the Syrian attack and their forces withdrew. This was a huge deal. Yossi, at the very least, saved many Jewish lives, and he may have even saved the existence of the Jewish state itself. End quote. And your professors lie to you. And they told you one man's personal actions make no difference in the affairs of the world. Yossi proves them all wrong. What if Yossi had been a coward and had enjoyed the delightful tan curves of his young wife on his vacation, sipping wine while his brothers in the Golan Heights literally burnt to death and went up in ashing smoke? Where would the Israelis have been then? No, the truth is personality matters. And if you don't believe me, ask a woman. They know. How many hot women have you seen with ugly guys that make them laugh? They're attracted to his personality, not his looks. Personality matters. It's not everything. I've read Marx and I've read Weber too. I know it's not everything, but it's enough. And sometimes it is decisive. Okay, so the 7th Brigade and Lieutenant Colonel Yossi stopped the main Syrian thrust into the Golan Heights. But this is just one of the two main theaters of the Yom Kippur War. The other one was taking place at exactly the same time on the 120-mile-long Suez Canal. The Egyptians fielded over 600,000 men, 2,000 tanks, 2,300 artillery pieces, 160 SAM missile batteries, and 550 combat airplanes. On October 6th at 2 p.m., they unleashed them all on the unsuspecting 430 Israelis holed up in bunkers 7 to 10 miles apart from one another. The Israelis also had 177 tanks 5 miles behind the front line as a reserve. More Jewish armor was in the Sinai heartland 20 miles away, but in the initial bombardment, they might as well have been on the moon. The Egyptian attack started with an hour-long missile artillery 
and aircraft barrage. Howard Sacker details what happened next. Quote, When the shelling reached its heaviest point, the first wave of 8,000 Egyptian infantry moved across the waterway in fiberglass boats. The Israelis responded by targeting the amphibious forces with aircraft. The problem was the Egyptians were attacking along the entire length of the Suez Canal at the same time. That's when the surface-to-air missiles began lasering into the Israeli jets. It was a bloodbath. Dozens of priceless Israeli planes were shot down by the Soviet missile systems. As the Egyptians reached the East Bank, some laid explosive charges under the bunkers and directed flamethrowers at the Israeli firing ports. Many Israelis were cooked alive inside the ovens that had once been their fortified bunkers. More Egyptians simply flooded in between the bunkers. There was little the shell-shocked defenders could do to stem the tide. By nightfall, more than 30,000 were on the Israeli side of the canal, and there were plenty more where they came from. Some units had pushed forward to a depth of three miles into Israeli-held territory. The infantry used water pumped through giant pressure washers to blow gaps in the sand embankments along the canal, clearing the way for an armor assault. That same night, 11 pontoon bridges were thrown up across the water. Tanks began rushing onto the Israeli shore. The Jewish state's air force was overwhelmed by the combined effects of sheer Egyptian numbers, smoke screens, and the terribly accurate surface-to-air missiles. The Israelis sent in their 177 reserve tanks to blunt the Egyptian tide. The tankers were confident as they rolled towards the canal when suddenly their machines began to randomly burst into flames one after another. The tankers blinked and stared at the sky open-mouthed. Then another tank burst into flames and another. The agonizing screams of the crew reverberating through the Israeli headsets, their mouths literally melting into the headpiece as their fear-heavy voices screamed for help that could not come. Where was the fire coming from? It was coming from the Egyptian infantry itself. They were hitting the tanks with hand-held bazookas. And the Egyptians had hundreds of these rockets. By October 7th, only 30 of the original 177 Israeli tanks were still in operation. The rest had been knocked out or withdrawn. The whole operation was a masterstroke for Islam. Within 24 hours, five Egyptian infantry and armored divisions were three miles into Israeli territory. It was a remarkable achievement. The Egyptians had suffered a mere 180 men in casualties, end quote. All through the next day, October 7th, the Israelis threw reinforcements into the front line as quickly as they could be dribbled in. The situation worsened. That's when the Israelis sent another 250 tanks straight into the center of the canal. Their job was to liberate the besieged Israeli strongpoints and then cross over the canal and attack the Egyptians on their own side of the Suez. The 250 tanks attacked at dawn on October 8th. The Israeli tank crews were hammered with artillery and missile fire. You could actually see the projectiles tearing through the air all around you. By the end of the day, not a single Israeli fortification had been saved, and the casualties were dreadful. At midday of October 9th, the remaining tanks were pulled back. On the same day, the Egyptians began taking out the remaining nine Israeli fortifications on the front line. Still, the bunker shield held out, isolated and alone, cut off. The radio operators transmitted a running account of their own nightmare. The wounded slowly bled out. They could have easily been saved at a rudimentary hospital, but instead they died on the dirty concrete floor of a bunker. Staff officers at the Israeli command center 
openly wept at the plight of their brethren on the front line. They knew any chance of relieving the bunkers was hopeless. Finally, the defenders were given permission to surrender. All but one of the bunkers did surrender. The last bunker actually held out until the end of the war. The Israelis formed a new battle line nine miles to the east of the canal. It was a terrible blow to the Israeli myth of invincibility. Now in Israel, the country re-entered a war footing. Blackouts came into force. Buses stopped running their normal routes. Lines of blood donors stretched around blood clinic blocks. And the Israeli leadership took stock of their own situation. The Syrians had begun launching Scud missiles at Israeli civilian centers as early as October 7th. In response, the Jewish state launched an air offensive against the Syrian civilian economy. And the Israeli aircraft were effective. Key Syrian radio stations, the Syrian Defense Ministry, power stations, fuel reserves, oil terminals, and the Syrian electrical grid were all either destroyed or crippled. Syria was actually returning to the Stone Age, but all of this destruction came at a heavy price. The toll on Israeli pilots and aircraft was devastating. Gone were the days when Israel walked over her enemies. Now it was a real slugfest, blow for blow, tooth for tooth. Eye for bloody eye. However, the relentless destruction of infrastructure directly led to a withdrawal of the limited Soviet-supplied missile cover from the front line in order to protect essential infrastructure in Syria itself. Now the Israeli Air Force would be free to strike at the Syrian front line troops. At noon on October 9th, Israeli military commanders under the leadership of David Eleazar decided to shift most of the reserves originally slated for the Sinai to the Golan Front. The Israelis didn't know it, but the Syrians were spent. Their supply convoys were failing to bring up reinforcements due to the accurate Israeli artillery fire that was sending scores of Arab drivers to paradise in the waiting arms of their 72 virgins. That's when the last remaining Israeli tanks in the Golan Heights, numbering just 20, made yet another counterattack against the Syrians. Suddenly, the battle was a walk in the park. The 20 Israelis cut down Syrian armor and personnel carriers the way Francisco Pizarro cut down Incan retainers when he captured the Incan Emperor Atahualpa. No one could believe it. The tankers later received this message from their leaders. You have saved the people of Israel. It was not an exaggeration. The Golan Heights front was stabilized. Then the Israelis went in for the kill. A modern historian recounts what happened next. Quote, Early on October 9th, the counterattack in the southern sector began. It was slow, grinding work against heavy Syrian defenses. Many old Super Shermans had to be used against the latest Soviet tanks. Once more, Israeli aggressiveness and gunnery decided the issue. Although they took heavy losses, the Jewish armor drove steadily northward. Soon, another Israeli division reached the Golan and secured the Israeli flanks. By the evening of the 9th, the tankers had cut the supply line of the largest Syrian concentration of forces. By dawn on the 10th, the Israeli armor pushed on with the offensive and gradually began to take control of the main Syrian supply road. Soon, the Israelis captured Quinetra, the capital of the Golan. 
by early afternoon, precisely four days after the Syrians had launched their avalanche of armor against Israel, not a single one of their tanks remained within the original Israeli-held territory. Strewn all along the roads of the Golan were 867 destroyed enemy tanks, over 3,000 armored personnel carriers, and hundreds of anti-tank guns, along with vast piles of other military equipment. The Syrians had thrown all they had into the offensive, and now the pride of their armor lay smoking and ruined on the Golan Heights, end quote. But things weren't looking good for Jewish fighters on the Egyptian front. The Muslims had already succeeded in cutting off incoming shipments of oil to Israel's southern port of Elat. Consequently, the Israelis were obliged to fall back on their emergency reserves and to order all their oil tankers around the Cape of Good Hope a huge distance to travel. The risk to Israel's economy was beyond measure. I should point out that the rest of the world wasn't playing checkers during this whole conflict. The UN was scrambling to find a solution. However, the great powers were too divided on what that solution should be. The United States wanted a ceasefire according to the front lines before the battle started on October 6th, while the Soviet Union called for a withdrawal of all forces to their borders from before the Six-Day War. The two sides could not reach an agreement and the negotiations dragged on for days. But the United States wasn't sitting still behind the scenes. The Americans were actively supplying the Israelis. As early as October 8th, heavy Israeli planes were picking up ammunition and spare parts at United States air bases. On October 9th, the United States began to replace Israeli aircraft losses. Meanwhile, the Soviets began to resupply Syria by air. On October 11th, Kissinger and Nixon decided to pour military supplies into Israel the way Southerners douse biscuits and sausage gravy just overflow. On October 13th, the American airlift to Israel began. From Delaware in New Jersey, giant C-130 and C-5 cargo planes loaded with tanks, bombs, shells, helicopters, spare parts, and other materiel began an around-the-clock airlift. Between October 14th and November 14th, the United States transported 22,000 tons of equipment in 566 flights. The equipment was valued at 820 Five million dollars, not including the expensive transportation of such equipment on aircraft. On October 19th, Nixon asked Congress for $2.2 billion in order to resupply Israel. Most historians agree that this infusion of military equipment saved Israel's war effort. Now, I did not just say Israel could not have won the war without this equipment, so you can stop leaving me that negative review right now. However, I can guarantee Israel would have had a much harder time winning without it, and I think you're forced to agree with me, friend. Here's a perfect example of the Cold War, the Soviets and the Americans confronting each other through surrogates. Now, by October 10th, Israel had forced the Syrians back to their initial front line. On October 11th, the Israelis launched an armored attack on Syrian territory, and they easily ran over all opposition. Within less than 24 hours, the Syrians showed signs of breaking. By the end of October 12th, Israel had captured the main Damascus road network and had turned two Iraqi armored brigades into scrap metal. Jewish armor had penetrated into the Syrian capital, Damascus' suburbs, and there they consolidated their position. The Arabs launched counterattacks for the rest of the conflict, but the Israelis just stayed put and sloughed off the Syrian assaults. A few days later, Israeli soldiers mounted an assault on Mount Hermon, the site of the first battle of the war. It was heavy fighting, and the Israelis suffered 141 casualties, but they took the mountain. 
By October 11th, the Israeli chief of staff, David Eliezer, decided to focus his efforts on the southern front with Egypt. By this time, the Egyptians had 70,000 troops six miles deep on the eastern Israeli side of the canal. The front line was continuous from the top of the peninsula to the bottom. Meanwhile, the Israelis shifted their armor from the Golan front to the Suez front. But something had changed at the canal. Israeli scouts had found an important flaw in the Egyptian line, just like the Death Star's thermal exhaust port from the Star Wars film. The scouts, by a lucky chance or an act of God, depending on your theology, had found a break between the Egyptian second army in the north and the third army in the south, so the Egyptian line had an undefended gap in it next to a place aptly called the Great Bitter Lake. The Israeli commanders pinched themselves when they saw the intelligence report. The gap was more beautiful than a co-ed figure in tight jeans. The Jewish commanders actually lusted for it. This is what they had been waiting for, and they felt the lust-like fear of an aspiring lover who was just about to share an evening with his love. But one wrong word, one wrong opinion, and he'll be spending the night alone. And not only was there a gap in the Egyptian front line, but the undefended hole was sighted on one of the best zones for an Israeli counterattack. Ariel Sharon had actually built a staging point at that precise place for the Israelis to launch a counterattack across the canal years before. It was called the compound. The Israelis began to build a small reserve in the compound. But the Egyptians were making their own moves. The Syrians were epileptic on the phone, desperately pleading for more pressure on the Israelis in the Sinai to relieve the danger to the Syrian capital itself. The Egyptians reluctantly agreed to help and sent their remaining armor reserve, 500 tanks, across the canal. For the next two days, Egyptian infantry and tanks flowed across the canal like fiat money in the pockets of the rich elite in Washington, D.C., Now, the suburbs of Washington are the richest counties in the nation, and they ain't manufacturing nothing. Where do you think all that money comes from? The Israelis matched the Egyptian buildup, deploying 430 tanks to meet the 1,000 Muslim tanks, gathering strength on the front line. The battle came at dawn on October 14th. It started, like it always does, with an obligatory 90-minute artillery barrage. Then, the Egyptians launched their full strength straight into the teeth of the waiting Israelis. The Israelis blinked when they saw the huge cloud of dust thrown up by the advancing Egyptians, billowing like a threatening thunderstorm. The battle lasted half a day and it was a him and to death. The Egyptians lost 250 tanks in the first two hours of combat. They attempted to bring infantry forward and personal carriers and the carriers were themselves slaughtered. The expert Israelis then cut off the retreat of the Egyptians, knocking out another 55 tanks in the process. The Jewish tankers didn't lose a single vehicle. It was a total Jewish victory. Now it was time to launch Ariel Sharon's surprise attack across the canal, straight down the undefended break between the two Egyptian armies. On October 15th at 5 p.m., the infantry and engineering units began crossing the canal. At the same time, the Israelis launched a diversionary attack in the north that succeeded in drawing the Egyptians' attention away from the main Israeli thrust. The assault preparation came at twilight. Everything was going smoothly. Sharon was working his men into their battle line the way rich, handsome, extra men work women at a bar. No problem. 
Then, all of a sudden, there was a problem. The Israeli tankers were a few thousand yards north of the Great Bitter Lake when they were suddenly hit by heavy Egyptian fire from a farm called Chinese Farm. A massive tank battle erupted that lasted for the next two days. One of Sharon's armored columns managed to break through to the staging area for the canal crossing, but in the darkness, most of the Israeli traffic was hopelessly snarled. Sharon decided to send 200 paratroops in rubber rafts silently over the canal to secure a bridgehead. At the same time, the Israeli attack was running into all kinds of opposition. The Egyptians blocked key areas with furious fire, and at dawn on the 16th, Egyptian artillery rained death on the flatbed trucks carrying essential bridging equipment. But the Israeli engineers were masters. When they were denied bridges, they simply strapped the elephant-sized tanks onto barges and floated them across the canal. By 9 a.m., only 2,000 men, along with 40 tanks, were on the Egyptian side of the water. Meanwhile, the Jewish tanks still had not secured the main attack corridor. Israeli armor, that were supposed to be across the canal by now, were still battling it out with their Egyptian counterparts, sometimes at ranges as close as 10 yards. Unbelievably, the Egyptians failed to realize that the Israelis were trying to break through to the other side of the canal. Had the Egyptians attacked the small Israeli force across the canal at this time, it would have been lights out for the major Israeli attack of the war. But fate, or God, depending on your worldview, blinded the Egyptians' eyes. Meanwhile, Sharon crossed the canal himself where he personally gained intelligence about the enemy's dispositions. The Egyptians on the far side of the canal were in disarray. Their morale was low. They were ready to fall. All the while, Sharon dribbled men and equipment across the waterway, slowly building up a viable attack force. By October 17th, the battle on the east side of the canal was going in Israel's favor. The engineers worked like ants, building pontoon bridges across the water, working amidst bombardment. Many died, but the pontoon bridges went up anyway. By now, the Egyptians knew what the Israelis were up to, and in desperation, they threw the 25th Egyptian Armored Brigade at the Israeli bridgehead from the south. Now, to set the stage, the Egyptian 25th is on the east side of the canal. They're going to attack from the south along a narrow pass, so they'll be traveling in between two obstacles, unable to maneuver. In other words, they're fish in a barrel. The Israelis were waiting for them. First, the Egyptians ran into an Israeli minefield, taking heavy casualties. Still, the attack pressed on. The only way onward for the line of attack was between the Bitter Lake and some sand dunes. The Israelis were waiting on the sand dunes in a classic ambush. Now, a lot of you noobs don't know this, but if you're going to ambush a line of vehicles, you want to guide the vehicles into an alley, take out or block the first vehicle, and then take out the rest of the vehicles in the row, one by one, at your own leisure. This is the standard capital L-shaped ambush. I'm talking about a uppercase L. And it's just what the Israelis did to the Egyptians that day. They blocked the first vehicle and then attacked up and down the rest of the line. Sim Dunstan picks up what happened next. Quote, about 100 Egyptian tanks and armored personnel carriers were heading north. The Israelis attacked and forced part of the Egyptian force to leave the road. The Egyptians then blundered into the Israeli minefield near the lake. The survivors headed straight for the sand dunes, where Israeli tanks were waiting like a scalding pregnant woman. 
Thirty minutes after the battle opened, another Israeli armored force attacked from the rear and completely boxed in the Egyptians. Now the Jewish armor picked off tanks and vehicles strung out along the shoreline at will. Israeli artillery joined in the destruction, spreading more carnage among the Egyptians. A few Egyptian tanks fled. Most didn't make it. Men who bailed out of their vehicles were ventilated with shrapnel from the omnipresent Jewish artillery. 85 out of 100 Egyptian tanks were now smoldering wrecks on the east side of the canal. After that, Israeli attacks across the canal proceeded without hindrance. It was like the Egyptian counterattack never even happened, end quote. Still, the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, refused to allow reinforcements to be pulled from the front line on the eastern side of the canal, and this was a horrible mistake. The Egyptian 3rd and 2nd Armies desperately tried to reconverge and block the hole they had inadvertently left open, but now it was too late. The Israelis easily beat them back. By nightfall on October 18th, there were 150 Israeli tanks on the western Egyptian side of the canal, and they were leaning into their work, enjoying their macabre labor like Chicago drill rappers in a music video. The Jewish armor was systematically destroying Egyptian missile batteries, tearing great holes in the invaluable Egyptian air defenses. That's when the Israeli Air Force flooded through the holes in the Egyptian surface-to-air missile system, launching devastating tactical ground support operations on both sides of the waterway. It was the old days of Jewish air supremacy all over again. By noon on October 18th, two more armored brigades were thrown across the canal, and a second Israeli bridge was in operation. Now the Israeli tanks were pressing west and south into the Egyptian heartland. In the north, they blocked Egyptian counterattack attempts. In the west, the Jewish state's tanks penetrated 16 miles. In the south, Israeli armor drove towards Suez City. If they could capture the city on the southern end of the Egyptian-held part of the canal... The third army, the southernmost Egyptian army still on the east side of the canal, would be trapped in a giant pocket. There they would slowly starve and run out of ammunition until all of them were taken prisoners or shipped to the next life. Suddenly, Russian diplomats saw the light and the need for a ceasefire. It's funny how talk achieved nothing but cold, hard battlefield facts greased the engines of diplomacy. The UN all of a sudden started working. The Soviets were trying to salvage what gains they could from the conflict. Kissinger flew to Moscow to work out a deal. The Israelis realized they only had one or two days left of fighting and they were determined to make them count so Israel would have a strong position at the negotiating table. The Americans and Russians came to an agreement and President Nixon sent a personal letter to Golda Meir, the Israeli prime minister, half asking and half telling her to abide by the ceasefire. On October 22nd, the United Nations met and approved Security Council Resolution 338 calling for a ceasefire and negotiations between the two warring sides. Israel, Egypt, and Jordan accepted the ceasefire. Syria ignored the resolution for two days and then finally accepted it. The Yom Kippur War was over on paper. But as I've proved time and again on this show, what's over on paper isn't what's over in the real world. In real life, the battle raged on. As I've told you before, the Israelis had reached but not captured Suez City, and they had cut the main supply line for the Egyptian 3rd Army across the canal. Large numbers of its troops were fleeing in disorder. 8,000 were already captured by the Israelis. The main force of 20,000 Egyptians were in terrible danger in these conditions. 
the Egyptians had no choice but to attack. Egyptian commando and infantry teams kept up the fight throughout October 22nd and 23rd, ignoring the ceasefire. This only allowed the Israelis to further consolidate their control behind the Third Army's lines. By the end of October 23rd, the Egyptian Third Army was more isolated than ever. Now, after the Israelis were chastised by the United Nations for continuing the fight, the war truly came to an end. A United Nations peacekeeping force was sent to the region to ensure the ceasefire was carried out, and by the time of the second ceasefire, the Israelis had penetrated 25 miles west of the canal into Egyptian territory, while the Egyptian forces in the north were still deployed at a depth of 3 to 5 miles into the Israeli side of the canal. Meanwhile, Kissinger demanded Israel allow supplies to reach the trapped Egyptian Third Army before they were starved out. The supplies were finally allowed into the Third Army, and so Kissinger ensured the Egyptian Third Army did not totally disintegrate. The Yom Kippur War was finally over. The Yom Kippur War had a devastating impact on Israel itself. It taught the Jewish state that its ground forces could no longer simply rely on their air force working in concert with well-drilled armor. The enemy had learned how to partially neutralize these branches with missile and anti-tank rockets. But on the other hand, the Yom Kippur War was one of the Israeli Defense Forces' greatest victories. Moreover, the war was a masterstroke of aerial resupply. The 10-day-long Soviet airlift had provided 8,000 tons of war material for the Arabs. It was the largest airlift of military equipment in human history until it was surpassed by the Americans in their airlift supporting Israel. As far as casualties, the Egyptians had suffered 7,700 combat dead, the Syrians 3,500. The Israelis held 9,000 enemy prisoners of war, the vast majority of which were Egyptian. The Arab forces had lost approximately 2,000 tanks and 500 aircraft, compared with Israel's loss of 804 tanks and 114 planes. For their part, the Israelis lost 2,552 dead and over 3,000 wounded in the 18 days of fighting, and there were tragedies worthy of a Hollywood melodrama in the fighting. A modern historian explains, quote, Israel was and is a small nation. The men fighting knew each other, and this often led to tragedy on the battlefield. For example, atop Mount Hermon, Colonel Avraham Ayalon found the body of his eldest son. In the dead of night, Major General Amos Herev had to drag the body of his son-in-law out of a trench that was being transformed into a flaming hell. He didn't save his son-in-law's life, he just saved the body. Generals in the military headquarters hundreds of miles from the front learned about the deaths of their sons and nephews and son-in-laws in the fighting. As for the economic cost, the expenditure of equipment and damaged property alone reached $4 billion. If one added to this the decline in production and exports as a result of the mobilization, the cost soared to $7 billion, the equivalent of Israel's GNP for an entire year." End quote. And so, it was a victory unlike the three previous ones we've recounted in this show. It was a victory that showed the terrible costs of war in both blood and treasure. Israeli leaders began to ask themselves how many more wars could Israel sustain before her economy collapsed or before the Arabs learned how to fight even better. Hell, they were already fighting better than they had in the previous four wars. What might happen if they fought four more wars with Israel? 
Moreover, the Soviet Union had unequivocally demonstrated their support for Arab nations in any future Middle Eastern conflict with Israel. And America wanted peace in the Middle East too. Kissinger flat out told the Israelis that they must withdraw from Sinai altogether in exchange for a stable peace treaty. This is ultimately what ended up happening. On January 17, 1974, Israel, Egypt, and the United States reached an accord. Israel would withdraw both from the west bank of the canal and from her advanced positions on the east bank to a distance of seven miles into Sinai. So they're withdrawing from the waterway bordering Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula seven miles into the Sinai. I'm talking they're going, if you're looking at a map, to the right towards Israel. Meanwhile, the Egyptians would reduce their military presence on the eastern bank to match the Israelis. A similar agreement was made with Israel. UN peacekeepers took up positions in between the opposing sides while negotiations continued. It took five more years for Israel to reach a peace treaty with the Egyptians. According to the terms of the treaty, Israel agreed to withdraw all its armed forces and civilian settlements from the Sinai. In turn, Egypt pledged to use airports in Sinai for civilian purposes only. Each party agreed to respect the other's territorial integrity and sovereignty. Each agreed to allow trade and normal economic exchange between the two nations. Peace had come to Israel's southern border. In the north, the situation wasn't so rosy. On December 14, 1980, Israel formally annexed the Golan Heights. The United Nations refused to recognize the annexation, and so the Golan Heights remain a divisive issue for peace until this day. In addition, Syria was constantly intervening in Lebanon, the one Israeli neighbor who was the least troublesome for the Israelis. This led to a full military incursion by Israel into southern Lebanon in the early 80s, the Israelis also armed and supported a Christian militia organized in Lebanon. On the northern front, conflict would continue for decades, but at a low level. Terrorism and guerrilla warfare would also play their part in Israel's military history after the Yom Kippur War. The blood would continue to flow in the Holy Land. Peace would remain elusive, but that's another podcast. In the meantime, I want to thank everyone who donated, who left us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. I never imagined that thousands of people would tune into this show every month, and I want you to know that I appreciate you personally. I really do. I'm not just saying that. You're more than just an engagement statistic for me. Many of you are from my own civilization. Many of you write in and keep me on my toes. Many more just listen to the show and keep my numbers going up. I'm super thankful for all of you. I'm not exaggerating or being sarcastic. Finally, I want to close this series on modern Israel with this quote from Benjamin Netanyahu. It really captures the sentiment of many Israelis, and it helps us understand the importance of power in our world today. Quote, Many people visiting Birkenau assumed that the Allies were unaware of the fact that all of Europe's Jews were being systematically annihilated, but I knew differently. For a year and a half during my tenure at the United Nations, my colleagues and I had waged a campaign to open the secret archives where the UN records on Nazi war criminals were kept. When we finally obtained access to the files, we saw that the Allies War Crimes Commission, established by Britain in 1942 and staffed by the officials of 17 countries, had been receiving accurate and comprehensive information about what was going on in the Nazi death camps in early 1944, a year and a half before the ovens were put out of commission by Germany's collapse. Had the Allies acted on this information, untold numbers of Jews could have been saved, but they knew and they did nothing. European Jewry was doomed. 
How did the Jews come to this point of utter helplessness? How did an entire people arrive at a state where they were herded quietly to the slaughter, unable to resist the monstrous assault on their persons and on their collective existence? And how is it that they were able to do nothing to elicit even an ounce of action from their would-be saviors? The question of Jewish powerlessness is central to the traumatic experience of the Jewish people and is the opposite side of the question of Jewish power. Certainly in the last 100 years, the Jewish people has experienced the most extreme shifts of circumstance from one pole to the other. The pogroms in Russia, the Dreyfus trial, the gathering storm of anti-Semitism and its seismic explosion in the Holocaust, along with Great Britain's cynical obstruction of the Jewish national movement's efforts to bring the Jews of Europe to a safe haven, these are the tragic steps in a people's descent to utter impotence. Similarly, the resurrection of Israel, the rebirth of Jewish military power, and its spectacular successes against adversaries far superior in numbers and material signify a movement in the contrary direction. Yet, as dramatic as this oscillation has been during the last century, I believe that the rise of Israel can only be understood in a much broader historical perspective, a millennial one. For the Jews are one of the oldest nations on earth, and they are distinguished by their capacity for remembrance. In its essence, the rise of Israel has been a conscious attempt to wrest redemption from the grip of unrelenting agony, and to do so by weaving into the future the enduring threads of collective will and purpose originating in a heroic past. A condition of inherent defenselessness necessarily invites aggression. This was especially true in the case of the Jews who uniquely combined economic success and endemic weakness, making them an irresistible target and producing an escalating cycle of pogrom and displacement. Tossed out from one land, the Jews would find a haven in another, usually striking an arrangement with a sovereign. And the Jewish people became a people that other people killed, often with relish, generally with impunity. But with the founding of the State of Israel, the majority of Jews quickly came to understand the critical importance of military power, a change far more abrupt and spectacular than the gradual loss of this understanding had been in Jewish history. Israel devoted an enormous part of its economy and the finest of its youth to the task of militarily defending the state. Much to the amazement of the world, the Jewish state was soon producing fighters second to none and an army that proved itself capable of routing far larger and better equipped fighting machines again and again. This is the essential transformation of the Jew which occurred with great rapidity on the soil of Palestine over the first half of this century. End quote. And so we see from Benjamin Netanyahu and from the history of the Sons people in South Africa, that powerlessness inherently invites aggression. Okay. Friends, it is your duty in any democracy that you're a part of to increase the power of your people. Friends, to be powerless is to be in a desperate situation. We've seen that from Jewish history, and we've seen the rebirth that can take place for a people in this four-part series. Now, what have many Jews learned from more than 3,000 years of Jewish history? Well, we just heard from Netanyahu. They learned the need for power, fine talk, world opinion, the brotherhood of man. When the enemy comes to take you and your property and your children, it's not slogans and constitutions, meetings and committees that stop the enemy. It's power. 
It was power that stopped the Zulu advance into South Africa. It was power that turned back Hitler's armies on the banks of the Volga. It was power that saved Vienna and the Christian Europe from being wiped out by the armies of Islam. It was power that guarantees safety, and it always has been. For Netanyahu, it took a holocaust for many Jewish people to learn this essential truth of human history. I wonder what it will take for the men of the West to learn the same thing. All right, until next month, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm sincerely wishing you good times and good health with good people wherever you may be, whatever continent you may live on. I mean this sincerely. Goodbye. This one is for me, after all the work I did on this series. You guys just don't know how many late nights I spent learning about the ancient history and the modern history of the Jewish people and the Islamic peoples. I'm very thankful that I live in a country and have the capacity and the institutional support to be able to bring these shows to you. I want to thank the Interlibrary Loan librarians of Emory University for all that they did to help make this show possible. Without them, I wouldn't have had half the sources and half the details that we have in these shows. I'm very thankful for them. And I want to thank you for listening because without you, I wouldn't be able to do this show again. Have a great day. I'm drinking a beer. And if you just cracked one open with me, cheers. I'm thankful for you. Bye.